welcome to episode 92 of The Professor and the Hack. Uh, thanks for staying with us, um, if you have, over that length of time. And if you're new to us, welcome. I am The Hack, Hugh Rimminton, and uh, with me is The Professor, Peter Van Onselen. Uh, morning. G'day, Hugh, and if, you ha- and if you haven't, then you're not listening anyway, so get stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get stuffed. <laughs> now, let me smoothly segue and take the get stuffed sentiment and apply mm. to any Indian Australians who might have been thinking of coming home, because this is the story of the moment. Yeah. Uh, one gets the feeling there's a little bit of embarrassment in the government as they try to patch up this particular little effort. But uh, talk us through this. What was, how did it develop that a, a past midnight news release emerged threatening Australian citizens in India with uh, six months jail if they um, seek to return to Australia? Yeah, look, it is. It's the politics of it are fascinating. I find the lack of humanitarian instincts appalling, as do a lot of people. And no doubt we'll talk about this unlikely coalition of people from all sides of politics who are pretty unimpressed by what the government have done here. But the politics of it are interesting because the politics of it are, I think, the government merging what they thought was an advantage of being tough on the borders and therefore extending that to being tough on even Australian citizens, which are mostly Australian citizens of Indian origin, we should say, trying to get home from India uh, and saying, well, bad luck. Uh, You're not allowed to even try to do so via third countries. And if you do, you could get jail time and you almost certainly will get a fine. They thought that tough rhetoric merged neatly with their tough on borders policy when it came to managing the pandemic, because uh, it's a post-pandemic world here, but not overseas and certainly not in India. They're in the midst of a of a real crisis, as we've seen on the news on a nightly basis. But they thought, I think, politically that this would be popular. And they believed, rightly or wrongly, that such a tough policy was in the national interest in terms of protecting Australia from uh, another wave taking off because it would leak out of hotel quarantine. Now, there are so many elements to this, Hugh, because it's a, it's a show of Uh, discomfort in the quality of hotel quarantine if they don't think it was up to the challenge. Uh, It was all about preventing Australians from trying to get to a third country to get here because they banned flights between Australia and India. But what some people were potentially going to do was try to get out of India to a country which hadn't banned flights from India and then use that as a segue to get into Australia. So fly to Doha, for example, and then fly into Australia or anything of that measure. So this was aimed at them. Now, the problem, and and this is a recent development as of Tuesday morning, the problem, I don't know if you had a chance to see the Prime Minister on Sunrise or the Today Show, but the problem he's got himself in, because this became so unpalatable, the idea that Australian citizens could be fined or even sent to jail simply for trying to get back to their own country, that hard rhetoric was replaced on Tuesday morning by the Prime Minister basically saying, oh, look, these are threats. They're never going to happen. I can't imagine in any realistic way that anyone is going to even get fined, much less go to jail. And he was pressed about this by the morning television hosts, particularly Carl Stefanovic on the Today Show. Uh, and, of course, the problem with playing chicken or indeed having a bluff is you've got to be prepared to carry through with it. Otherwise, it's just an empty threat. And what was supposed to be strong rhetoric that they thought aligned with the health needs of the country, whether that's true or not, has turned into a bluff which has been called because of the political backlash, where it just now doesn't even look like they're even willing to go down that path. And all of it, as you say, Hugh, uh, follows a an after-midnight media release by the health minister, Greg Hunt, and a weekend in which we then saw, 
I think it was Peter Dutton, but it was certainly government ministers out parading the importance of the tough rhetoric when it came to jail before the PM backs down on that. And we've had a stoush between Maurice Payne in particular over the weekend on Sunday as the foreign minister saying that this was ticked off on by the chief medical officer, the prime minister echoing those words, but the chief medical officer on Monday, uh, Paul Kelly came out and said, well, actually, uh, we didn't tick off on the specifics of the measures. We were simply talking about the advice around what was in the best interest more broadly about who you let in and who you don't, not about the punitive measures that follow. It's fascinating to see Andrew Bolt in the uh, Murdoch uh, tabloids saying he's ashamed of the government for making it a crime for Indian Australians to come back home. He says it stinks of racism and is despicable. <laughs> when you've lost Andrew Bolt on a matter like this, you think you've got a problem, haven't you? Well, it's, it's, it, look, it is a really interesting coalition. You've got Andrew Bolt, as you say, uh, accusing the government of racism. Janet Albrechtson has been all over Twitter saying what a disgrace this is. Obviously, large chunks of the left, as you might expect, are up in arms uh, about this and what it says about the lack of, uh, the lack of moral decency in this country. Uh, commentators writ large on Talkback Radio are highly critical of the government over this. Uh, then you've also got Australian cricketers like Michael Slater out saying, or ex-cricketers like Michael Slater out saying that the Prime Minister has blood on his hands, his words from a tweet. And you've even got Matt Canavan as a former cabinet minister and obviously a senior national, uh, now a maverick on the backbench. He's out and about making the point that this is ridiculous. We shouldn't be doing this tweeting to that effect on Monday. So the Prime Minister, it's closing in all around him. And the date that this, because it is temporary, the date that this is due to expire, these provisions that they've enacted from the Biosecurity Act, is roughly mid, mid-May, mid I think 13 May or thereabouts. But can he last till then uh, with this policy, with how frustrated people are? Hugh, we're not even at the point now where he's copying criticism for not putting on charter flights to get Australians back, which I think is a responsibility of government anyway, frankly. And I've been critical of that in other countries too during the pandemic, that we've got all these Hercules sitting idle in Air Force bases rather than uh, using them or indeed even chartering Qantas flights as much as we could or should. But this is one step further than that. This is actively saying to Australian citizens, if you are able to find your own way home somehow to safety, to the country that the passport says you should be given safe passage to, if you can do that, there's a risk that you get fined or even thrown in jail. There are two points I want to sort of explore on this. Um, one of them is how this reveals the utter failure of the quarantine process. We've got Alex Hawke now, the immigration minister, saying, well, look, you know, the, the ban on the, on the travel is only till May the 15th, and we're, we're working really hard to get repatriation flights. We're going to resume at that time. So what's happened in, in the period from the announcement of the ban and May the 15th? It's not that India has become less of a problem because all the forecasts are that India's COVID wave is going to keep galloping, get, getting worse and worse, more and more people being affected. They're nowhere even remotely seeing the peak of that. So at the time that they intend to resume flights from India, the actual situation on the ground will be demonstrably worse than it was when they announced the ban. So... All that's changed is the politics. And presumably what it means is that if you're willing in May the 15th, which is what we're hearing from Alex Hawke now, to resume repatriation flights, then, then what you're saying is that when the ban went in, 
you weren't in a position to manage Australia for all the fact this has now been going on for more than a year, wasn't in a position to manage people, citizens coming in from overseas. Now, the assumption is that in this short couple of weeks, we are going to be in a position to accept these people coming back. That'd be a dubious proposition, but plainly the politics of it is such that uh, they, they can't keep banning it off and threatening criminal sanctions, jail time and all the rest of it, without admitting that they blew the quarantine responsibilities of the federal government. It's a sign that hotel quarantine isn't fit for purpose, isn't it? And and I say that in the context that Australia can put India to one side for a moment. Australia compared to other countries, our quarantine has been exceptional. Now, that's not to suggest that there haven't been problems, but there are experts lining up to be critical that hotel quarantine, particularly with some of these new variants of the virus that are more airborne, the argument is that hotel quarantine with ducted air conditioning within hotels is not fit for purpose. Now, it might have been a really neat idea early on and even halfway through this pandemic, both for the economics of it with helping these hotels to stay afloat, but also just with the simplicity of it, that you could then have it spread out across the country with existing facilities. But And as I say, we've been world leading on that front, but there has been ample time at which there has been the uptick of concern about the more airborne uh, nature of, of the new strains of the virus being, you know, if you like, more contagious. There has also been ample time to listen to the experts who have been saying we can organise camps, quarantine camps, and it is a federal responsibility ultimately, federal quarantine camps at the sites of what can become international airports in regional areas so that there aren't travel issues attached even with the transportation from airport to site. Uh, You've got offers even with the Wagner family up in Queensland who are saying they're prepared to fund it Uh, because they can actually see a commercial benefit into the longer term because they believe that the need for this sort of quarantine facility will be with us for some time. And of course, we've now had over 15 months of the pandemic that all of this could have been in train and planning for. So even though hotel quarantine has broadly been successful for Australia, it's fit for purpose nature has become more dubious as we go on through this pandemic. And now all of a sudden, the government's saying, well, we can't manage Uh, or the risk is that we can't manage such a high uptake of people coming from India who would already be likely to have COVID. So therefore, we've got to get ready for that. Uh, And as you point out, Hugh, India's going to keep getting worse. That is something that is raising another concern for people against the government, which is, well, hang on a second. Quarantine is technically a federal responsibility. Experts have been telling you to set up camps and you haven't. You've been relying on hotel quarantine. This is exposing that failure as well if you like. And it's, you know, look, it's all in the context. I feel like I need to keep saying this. It's all in the context that you'd rather be here than anywhere else. Um, But all of a sudden, if you are somewhere else and you're an Australian citizen, you can't get here uh, or you risk jail time if you're trying. Yeah. Look, I I want to go to that other question, which is about citizenship. And there is a, uh, this is the thing which disturbs me. uh, uh, Put it this way. I reflect on the fact that, um, the rights of citizenship are conservative institutional principles and rights. Uh, you know, if there's anyone going to attack citizenship, you'd think it would be some sort of, you know, soft left globalization. The nation state doesn't matter. We're all, you know, the world is all one happy family or whatever it is. I mean, conservative institutional 
instincts say that citizenship matters and it is the core not just identity element but it's also this one thing that gives you a place in the world is that you have the citizenship now progressively we've seen from peter dutton the stripping of citizenship away from uh, people who uh, have joined up with terrorist groups and so on and that's been widely applauded but there's a kind of a little line crossing there uh, Peter Dutton also obviously very strong on the importance of, for example, New Zealand citizenship. So you could have been born in Australia or come here as a small child, commit a crime, but it's because you retain New Zealand citizenship that uh, much to the displeasure of the Kiwis, you can be deported after your jail sentence to land up on their shores where you don't know anyone. So on that point, citizenship matters as long as it's some other country's citizenship. And yet now we're hearing from an allegedly conservative government that your citizenship value is placed so low that not only will they not go to help you if you're overseas, you'll be prevented from coming back. Well, OK, fair enough, under travel bans, perhaps. But the threat of jailing your own citizens for trying to come home, it would seem to me as a profoundly non-conservative point of view. Oh, absolutely, uh, and 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 deeply inconsistent as well with some of the some of the context, Hugh, that you've just laid out there. I mean, there is a. So, I read about this on Monday in the Oz. There's a social contract between the state and its citizens, and that social contract involves citizens being expected to obey the law, pay their taxes, live by the cultural norms and rules of a society by and large. But the state's responsibilities are also evident, including on an international stage, to look after one's citizens. And this isn't even a case of, of repatriation flights. This is a case of just simply letting those citizens back into the country of which they have citizenship, which would seem like the most basic right of citizenship. I do also think, and this is a, a red herring to what we're talking about here, but I personally hope that with the state border closures in our federal structure, that this also casts a bit of a more critical eye on that, because I think that citizens of a nation have as much right to travel within a nation, within reason, um, as they do to get back into that said nation. And that has been shut down by state premiers. And that's actually one where I'm more on the side of the federal government, particularly in the context of when we're talking about limited cases, as opposed to the real constitutional imperative around the ability for quarantine purposes to shut states off from one another if there are biosecurity risks. But you know, you, you're absolutely right. Peter Dutton places an enormous emphasis on a, a person who spent their entire life, other than the point of birth in Australia, who are a New Zealand citizen, at shipping them back there, potentially for relatively minor indiscretions, not even you know on the most heinous end, but certainly jail terms. But then I'm a dual citizen, Hugh. I've got US citizenship as well as Australian because of my mother's side of the family. I've always been aghast at the policy that if I, I mean, not that I'm intending to be a terrorist anytime soon, but the idea that I, I could have via these new laws that they have, have my Australian citizenship stripped from me where I to do the wrong thing in that space and then just suddenly become a US citizen, lose my Australian citizenship. I've never lived in the United States. That, that just strikes me as borderline ridiculous, frankly, but it's had popular support, as you mentioned in the past. I just hope that there's a more critical eye on all of this now as a result of the government in the eyes of a lot of people, including Andrew Bolt et al., having crossed a line when it comes to you know that sacred right of citizenship. Let's take a quick break. Back with more in just a second.
G'day, Sandra Sully here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you're looking for more to listen to, head over to Short Black with me next. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat. Welcome back. This is episode 92 of The Professor and the Hack. Well, politicians come and go. We're seeing some new politicians arriving in Tasmania, bright-eyed, ready for their new careers, and occasionally, of course, politicians also go. Um, some more lamented than others. You've got your eye on one politician who's intending to go quite, oh, uh, smartly, I think. This is outrageous, Hugh, uh, and I'm talking about George Christensen. Now, he's chosen to retire from politics, the member for Dawson. Uh, he was described uncharitably as the member for Manila in recent times because of the amount of time he'd spent overseas rather than in his own electorate. It didn't hurt him at the last election. He had the biggest swing to him of around 11.5% of any MP anywhere in the country, making Dawson uh, the most safe of safe seats at about 14%, even though it is a marginal seat and will no doubt go back to being on the radar as a marginal seat post George Christensen's retirement. Now, I've got no problem with him choosing to retire. Had he not, I suspect he would have won the seat, but he's chosen to retire. Good on him. Good luck with the next thing in his life. My criticism is that there is a quirk in the system that if you lose your pre-selection, just as if you lost the seat when running for it, for example, and, and were defeated, that candidates then get a payout right? Which is not unreasonable. It's sort of, it becomes its own version of a redundancy payout for normal workers uh, in the system. Now that's different to retirement. If you or I, Hugh, left Network 10, then we choose to leave. We move on to the next thing. That's akin to what George Christensen has said he's doing. But if you or I get let go because they decide to not have a political editor or they decide to not have a national affairs editor, then we get made redundant. We get a payout. We have a right to that. Similarly, if George Christensen had lost his seat at the election, or indeed if he'd lost pre-selection for his party and then somebody else gets to run, you get that payout. In his case, it's around about $100,000, sort of roughly half of his, his income, his salary. Now, here's the quirk. Apparently, it's been at his request, but you know that, that is to be tested. But what has certainly happened is the LMP headquarters have been asked by the branch within George Christensen's electorate to reject Christensen as a candidate formally, because by doing so, that makes him eligible for that $100,000 of taxpayers' payout. Now, that is not retirement, Hugh Rimmington. That is a rort right there. And if it's not a rort in legal terms, it's a rort in moral terms, because that is outrageous. He has chosen to retire. He has not been rejected as the candidate and would not be rejected as the LMP candidate if he indeed wanted to run, because he's a surefire way that they win the seat. Now, Andrew Lamming is a different kettle of fish. Andrew Lamming's got problems. Andrew Lamming would be rejected at a pre-selection level because the party doesn't want him to run again. I believe, whatever you think of his indiscretions, he has a workplace right to that payout because he's been told to bugger off because of what he's done wrong. But it's completely different. Yeah, but does, does Lamin get it? Because he's... Lamin, Lamin, Lamin will almost certainly get it. I know that he said, I don't intend to contest the next election. But then what he did, he actually decided to run. Now, by choosing to run, he's trying to get his hands on the money. So the way he's doing it 
is not ideal. But the simple fact is the reason that he is retiring is because he's jumping before he was going to get pushed. So it was a bit of a face-saving effort. But then he suddenly looked at the books and decided he wanted his 100 grand on the way out the door. Now, it's untoward, and I'm certainly not endorsing what he's done. And by the way, in a workplace environment, I sound like I'm doing a little bit of a backflip here as I talk about this. The issue with uh, lambing is that in a workplace environment, in any normal workplace environment, the allegations being levelled at him, some of which he denies the exact details of it, would probably result in a dismissal, which would take away one's redundancy rights, frankly. So that's its own discussion. But other than that, uh, he has, because he is being rejected, he is more righteous in claiming this taxpayer payout as per any workers' rights. But there is no I, I do. I do wonder about some of those women in the seat of Bowman thinking, hang on a minute, this guy's been there for years. His, this is Lamming we're talking about. His, his bizarre behaviour has been known about for years. He's, it's finally caught up with him. He's, he's got his empathy training, which taught him that he perhaps had too much empathy. Um, Online was, empathy training, we should say. Online well. empathy training. <laughs> uh, and, and, and that he will walk away, not only with the salary he's taking all the time now until the election, whenever it's held, but then also this extra payout until he goes. People say, hang on a minute, as you say, in any other business, it's, it, well, it should be. Get out of here, you creep. Um, but it's interesting with Christensen, you know, he's leaving politics, he thundered, because politics is broken. Well, one part of politics sure isn't broken, and that is chasing after the best rorts you can possibly manage. It's so bad. It's so bad, isn't it? I mean, look, and, and don't get me wrong, what, what the PM should do with Lamming is kick him out of the party, which means he goes to the crossbench. That would automatically make him eligible for his payout then and there, right? Because he's been kicked out. So he's formally eligible. But I think you're right, Hugh. Most people would be of the view, surely like in another workplace environment, there would be an instant dismissal component which would take away that right. But short of that, he has the entitlement, even if it seems unfair. George Christensen, it's just a complete plane of the system for him to get it. That's a total plane of the system. He said he's leaving, yet all of a sudden he's being asked, or his branch at least, he's asking for him to be formally rejected by the LNP as a candidate purely to be able to get his hands on the cash. That's just outrageous. Now, let's talk to the budget. Uh, another, you know, more op-eds coming out of the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. Uh, again, reinforcing, we're now well uh, preconditioned to expect that this budget will, will bake in the idea that a, uh, a coalition government is putting as its central focus the reduction of, of unemployment, aiming for full employment, as opposed to a budget uh, back in surplus, uh, you know, budget repair. Um, the RBA, now tipping to forecast that full employment, is likely to roll up in a couple of years. Uh, is, is Josh Frydenberg getting it right? Well, look, the difficulty with where Josh Frydenberg's at, I'm so, so sure that he's getting it right as that he's not getting it horribly wrong. Uh, he's very constrained at, at this point in time. I don't disagree with large spending in the current climate. Uh, and, and I think most economists wouldn't disagree either. I can call that the hypocrisy in the government when it comes to that, because I doubt they would be so generous and so understanding about large spending were at a Labor government. Indeed, they weren't in a different context post-GFC. We know that. But having said that, where I think, where I think there's elements of the government getting it wrong, it's more in the spectre of missing reform opportunities at the same time as that because we might be in an environment at the moment where shooting for a lower unemployment rate is a good thing um, just to ensure that we have close as, as close as possible to full employment shooting for 
um, injecting uh, stimulus into the economy isn't a bad thing, notwithstanding some sector issues, like, for example, the housing sector. But generally, it's not a bad thing because we need to ensure that we grow our way out of uh, what was a downturn and is now quickly becoming an upturn post-pandemic. But you also have to take your reform opportunities. And the problem that we've got at the moment, and, and this is where I think that the Treasurer and the government is wrong on the economics for the need of reform, but probably right on the politics of not going down that path. The problem is we need major reform post-pandemic. People like Ross Garner have written an entire book about some of the ways that it can happen. Uh, and Wayne and I actually have another book coming out on policy pariahs, we call it, in mid-January, which goes through good policy ideas, but unfortunately they're politically not palatable. The problem at the moment is major reform is, is I think, writ large, not particularly palatable for the government, unless it's gender reform. Now, the reason it's not palatable for the government is because people have already been turned off the government. Reform is hard. So they're looking at the politics of it and deciding it's it's in the too hard basket now. So overall, I think, you know, Josh Frydenberg is doing what he can. However, uh, it's in the context politically of where he can't do much by way of major reform beyond the simple uh, spending. So to your mind, what is the great... Uh you know, reform of the moment that is being ignored? Well, I think it's, I, I, it is so wholesale, Hugh, that I almost don't want to narrow it down. I'll, I'll give some examples, but I think it's so, it has to be sector-wide tax reform rather than cherry-picked tax reform. And as part of that sector-wide tax reform, I think you need to do things like better carbon taxing. That's not going to happen. You need to look at a universal basic income in the, in the era that we're in as a replacement for the complexity of the current welfare system. But that's certainly not going to happen. You absolutely need to restructure income and consumption taxes at the same time as that, but that's also not going to happen. And you need to have this tax reform, wide-ranging tax reform debate in the context of a, an actual philosophical and cultural discussion about what we believe we want and need from government. Because at the moment, I think there's a disconnect here. What people want from government and what people believe they need is, is a growing era of big government with the tentacles of government reaching more and more into private sectors as well as people's daily lives. The expectations on government in the era of not just having baked in Medicare, but now things like the NDIS and, and other platforms as well. In that era... You need to have a real serious discussion about what we want from government. And if we want a lot, be realistic about what that means we need to provide government via revenue streams. And then you have the tax reform debate about what those revenue streams might look for, how you incentivise growth, how you incentivise environmental focus, how you incentivise um, entrepreneurship as well. So it's, it's so big what needs to happen that unfortunately in the post pandemic world, I think most Australians, and that's why the politicians are reading the room. I think most Australians look at it and just go, Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. That's the last thing we need right now. We're just trying to get through on a daily basis and hopefully not lose our jobs. That's the, the, the Morrison pragmatism there. So uh, I guess there's enormous pressure on the government to do something in the case of aged care after the Royal Commission in disability. Uh, there's also uh, enormous pressure and it's been yep. you know, hinted at, you know, the, the cat's out of the bag on childcare. 
Uh, now, many of these things, it's fine to stimulate the economy and keep it going, given that interest rates are so low, there could be no, uh, you know, that there's not much the Reserve Bank can do to keep, uh, you know, blood in the arteries. So what are the dangers for Frydenberg as he goes into this budget that he feels this or he comes under this enormous pressure to essentially um, lock in long term budgetary costs in the name of stimulating the economy? And then that is the thing which becomes a drag on the on the wider economy over time. Down the track, uh, so so what what we're seeing, I, I agree, uh, is we're seeing all of this get put into budget spending now, but without those reform ideas that could further down the track lead to the the tax windfalls that we need. Uh, and so it, it becomes a, a case of kicking the can further down the road, which fits with you know, the continued issuing of government bonds uh, on, on five, 10 or 20 year basis, even at low interest rates, but they will mature at a time probably of higher interest rates being required to reissue those said bonds. I'm glad you raised aged care because that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really good example within the mix of expectations of government. I think in the wake of the Aged Care Royal Commission, people want a lot more from their government around aged care. Uh, we want, uh, as an aging population, to know that we and our loved ones are going to be looked after through a system which has been shown to be highly faulty, but that costs a lot of money. So you need to put the kind of re tax reform in place that can cover the cost of it in the long term. Otherwise, you might fix it in the short term with outlays uh, and we can live off debt for a while because we've got low debt relative to other nations and printing money seems to be working in the current era. Interest rates are low. But that won't always be the case, will it? Uh, and when it's no longer the case, there is going to be a moment in time where some government somewhere is going to have to step up and say, hey, it's time for some major reform. Look, we're nearly done. We have to, in part, acknowledge the G7 plus one uh, or G7 plus talks. Uh, Maurice Payne off to talk uh, in London. She's going to swing back through Washington on the way back. Uh, increasingly, the signs being of a kind of a recalibration as, uh, you know, I don't want to say against China, but sort of reflecting the reality of China. Peter Jennings in the Australia Today saying that China's aim is to destroy the international order, the international order putting up a rearguard action, I would seem. And, and Australia, it would appear clear, uh, is, uh, is, is deciding where it's going to be, even as China and particularly its appetite for our iron ore underpins everything else we do at the moment. Yep, there's no doubt about that. And, and we are wedged between the two halves of where this goes, between the United States and China, uh, and wedged in our alliance partnership with our biggest economic trading partner and a growing economic trading partner at that, uh, there's no easy solution to this. Um, but i tell you what's interesting to me uh, as a sort of wrap on it, and we'll probably do a whole podcast at some point on this, but it used to be the outliers, um, the experts in this area that would talk about the likelihood or even the inevitability at some point this century of war uh, with China, um, whether it's the US or whether it's just simply over Taiwan, depending on how the US reacts to it. But that they were few and far between once upon a time, but not so much anymore would be my read of that. Yeah. Um, we will do a podcast on that at some future time because it's going to uh, dominate the lives of, uh, of our kids, if not us. Uh, great to talk to you, PVO. Likewise, you talk again soon. All the best. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.